Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. So the college admission scandal was certainly the big news of the week. But I have to say, for me, it was also the biggest head-scratcher of the week. Not because cheating is surprising, or that it's surprising that the government might prosecute people who are cheating in this way, But I was really scratching my head about the fact that so many people with extreme wealth, people whose lives are patterned around unbridled access and privilege, would commit acts so desperate just to gain elite college admission for their children. Why did they need it? Or more precisely, why did they feel like they needed it? And further, what does this tell us? about the idea of meritocracy here in the United States. The notion that, for the most part, people are out earning what they get. That's where we want to start the conversation today on Detroit Today. What does this tell us about our culture? What does this tell us about morality in our culture? If this story had broken and it was about middle-class families doing these things to try to get their kids into elite colleges, I would have said, well, of course. That's part of being part of the middle class in this country. It's striving to get further, to get more into the upper class. If this had been a story about poor families doing things just to get a chance to go to college, I don't think I would have been surprised. That's what you expect. But these are wealthy families, again, who have unbridled access and privilege. If their kids went to elite schools, it's not like their lives would have been different. If they didn't go to elite schools, it's not like their lives would have been any worse. So what was it about admission to these schools that drove these parents to do these things? On some levels, it just does not make sense. So we want to hear from you, of course. What do you think about this scandal? What do you think about the things that these parents did? Are they things that that you think anyone would do to try to get an advantage for their kids? Are they the kind of things that we expect parents to go to to make sure that access and opportunity is theirs? Or is this a reflection of a society gone wildly off the rails? Have we all lost our minds too much about elite college admission or advantage? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us to kick that conversation off is Matthew Stewart. He is an author who recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic about the college admission scandal. It was titled, The Moral Center of Meritocracy Collapses. Matthew Stewart, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, Stephen. Great to be here. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so uh, give us the Cliff Notes version of what happened here and talk about why you call it the collapse of the moral center of meritocracy. Let's uh, be clear about uh, one thing first, which is that the people involved in this case crossed a line. I mean, in fact, they crossed five or six lines. Uh, I, I don't know if your listeners have heard, but there was 
a father photoshopping his son as a pole vaulter <laughs> and another one pretending that the kid was a water polo player. Yes. And they passed off bribes as charitable contributions. I mean, you know, these, these are these are bad eggs. Um, but still, if you get uh, you know one bad egg at a crime story and you get 33 showing up in one neighborhood, you've got to start asking questions about the neighborhood. So I, I think you're right. It, 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 we have to ask, what does this reflect about our culture. Sure, there may be a few people who step over the line, but clearly what they're doing reflects some broader craziness. And I guess the, the one point I'll try to get across, and I want to hear what your listeners have to say, mm-hmm. um, is that we have to look at the fundamentals here. Um, it's not just a matter of people having a few crazy ideas about uh, fancy colleges or a few people getting carried away. Let's look at our economy. Let's look at how it works and how it distributes uh, rewards. Because I think at the core of this is a, uh, a fundamental distortion in, in the uh, di- distribution of rewards in the economy. We have rising inequality. Uh, we tend to think of that inequality primarily in terms of these super wealthy people who are flying off to private islands. But actually what happens in, 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 uh, as inequality rises is that the classes stretch farther and farther apart. So you have not just a super wealthy elite of 0.1%, but you have a class below them that is now a lot wealthier than the people below them, but a lot poorer than the people above them. <laughs> and it's that stretching, I think, that puts unbelievable tension on our culture. It produces narcissism. It produces crazy status anxiety. And I think if you, you know, wade through this particular scandal, that, that's where you'll end up. So I, I, I wonder if you can talk a little about what you think drives this sense that everyone seems to have, or that this scandal certainly reflects that this class of super wealthy people seem to have, that there is always more, that there is always another level to get to, and that it's worth doing just about anything you can think of to get to that level. I, I, maybe I'm naive in thinking that that, that wasn't always of a feature of our culture in this country, but or maybe it it always was, and it's just bigger now. But there does seem to be something different about this idea that even among people who have an enormous amount for themselves, that they can have more and that they can get more. Where where does that come from? You know, it's always been a feature of our culture, but it has it goes up and down over time, and it has gone up. Uh, we used to be more equal than we are now. Uh, and I, I do think that that's at, at the root of the problem. Now, you're right. That the, the people involved in this uh, scandal are, by most people's standards, incredibly wealthy. They live in, uh, in neighborhoods that have median home values of $3 million, $5 million and, and more, uh, Mill Valley and Atherton and places like that in California. But I can promise you from having taken a few trips around those neighborhoods, but they don't see themselves as rich. They see them. I'm not joking. They see themselves as middle class people who have done well, uh, and who are surrounded by people who are a lot wealthier than they are. Wow. But there's there's something else too that I think you're getting at that we really need to bring out. It's that uh, we we like to tell ourselves that we all earn the money we make, and I think most people who work at, at decent jobs can can say that with confidence. Um, when you get an economy that is so imbalanced. People at that uh, at that upper end start to um, they either appreciate that they've that they're making more than they really deserve, 
or they have to delude themselves because the fact of the matter is that they are, and they need to kid themselves about uh, you know how, where, where it really comes from. And I think that puts uh, that creates a really uh, unpleasant psychology where they are you know living in a kind of in a, in a state where they think that uh, perceptions matter more than reality, where they they think that everything is fundamentally a fraud, um, and and that I think leads them to. Uh, Look, look how they approach education for their children. Right? Education has got to be one of the most important things you can consider for your children. It's been the backbone of the American dream. It created the world's largest middle class. And how do they approach it? They approach it the way they go out and buy a car. I mean, they're, you know, they, they're looking at the, at the logo. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did any of those parents discuss what their students would really get out of studying at, at, at Yale or Stanford or USC? Not to my knowledge. I mean, they were just keen on getting them in there so they could have the, the, the sticker, right? So um, wow. that kind of superficiality, I think, uh, does come down to living in a world where you, you, you believe fraud is at the core, and it's at the core of your own material existence and, and, and that of everything around you. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. My guest is Matthew Stewart. He's an author who recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic about the college admission scandal titled The Moral Center of Meritocracy Collapses. Uh, You can also uh, get uh, into the conversation on Facebook at the WDET Facebook page or on Twitter. If you hashtag us, uh, we'll try to work you in there. We've got a lot of folks, no surprise, who want to talk about this issue. Let's start with Brett in Ypsilanti. Brett, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. uh, Thanks for taking my call um, and talking about this topic. Um, So I wanted to talk about it from the perspective of being a graduate student at University of Michigan who... Um, has taught undergrads at that institution mm-hmm. um, as, as an, in the assistant teaching role. Um, and I, I feel like this, obviously the scandal represents an extreme case um, of this, but I've seen a lot of coverage that points out like the legacy admissions and a lot of other maybe seemingly more benign ways of wealthy, wealthy class getting their children into these institutions. And what I see from my end is that then when I'm teaching them, and it's obvious that, you know, they're not prepared, um, but then they'll be, they write about being from a prep school or growing up in a way that informs me that they're privileged, or, or you can tell sometimes from the clothes and the $1,000 jackets that there's privilege there, but that they seem un, unprepared for the, you didn't do the work, so you're not going to get the grade. I mean, there's this expectation, like, I've, I've never seen that... Um, before, like, I didn't do that as an undergrad, like, asking for grading increases when it's not merited, and then not understanding why you don't get the grade that you expect, and I wonder what the impact on the children is from this when you're essentially handing them rewards that are not earned, and I think it speaks to the point that was just brought up um, in terms of rewards for, um, like, the the parents themselves, how they view, like, accruing more and more. Um, I wonder what the impact is on the children, and and then what does that do to the kind of the education system itself? Like, right. are we diluting the education system to accommodate? Because um, we're letting people in not based on merit, but based it's a, on, like, privilege. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, Brett. I uh, appreciate the call. Um, uh, Matthew Stewart, uh, talk about, I mean, in your piece, you, you, you do a lot of work to, to, to show how meritocracy 
um, is kind of under attack by uh, by income inequality and this stretching, as you say, of uh, the income spectrum. But but I do wonder how how widespread, I guess, you think it is uh, that uh, people are are getting unearned advantage. I think that's what Brett is getting at: is that there seems to be this kind of commensurate. Um, uh, advantage, unearned advantage that's accruing to people who already have so much? Well, let me throw out a couple of numbers, and then I want to get at uh, some of the great issues that Brett brought up. Um, if you are a child of the top 1%, you are 77 times more likely to be in an Ivy League uh, institution than if you are a child born to the bottom 20%. That's take that fact number one. Here's mm-hmm. fact number two. Um, about 2% of American high, high school students go to uh, non-sectarian private schools or prep schools. The best numbers that you can find for Ivy Leagues show that they range from about 28 to 40% of representation of those same private schools in their student bodies. Now, let's get to, to Brett's question, because he mentioned two really important things. Um, the sense of entitlement, and I think he's also getting at a, a sense of emptiness that you end up producing in some of these kids. Mm. So, yeah, they've had pretty much everything handed to them. They expect to be served, and this is what happens with upper classes throughout history, uh, and it is happening. I, you, you can just see it. I can see it. I, I spend time at some of these universities, and, yeah, there are many well-deserving, you know, great, super-smart kids, but there is also a strong sense of entitlement. But then here's the other side of that coin. When people get things that they don't really deserve, they kind of intuit that. They know that at some level. Uh, And then that leads to a sense of emptiness. It leads to a sense that they're not really the ones that are pulling the strings, that they're just trying to fulfill somebody else's expectations. And so what you have seen also is in this same group of people, a higher level of um, uh, mental illness. You've seen higher um, levels of, of disorder. So um, these, are, these are real things. Uh, they're out there. Now, to your question about how prevalent this is, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's open for debate. Um, and, you know, if we go too far, we, we will say things like we're in the last days of Rome. <laughs> uh, I'm not there yet. Uh, but, if we, uh, but I think we have to recognize that this is definitely rising, and it's definitely a thing, and it definitely um, undermines the, the concept of, of meritocracy, which we should always put in scare quotes because there's, there's no such thing, really. Uh, but it undermines the idea that hard work um, generates uh, rewards and people's contributions to society uh, can be reflected in, in the rewards uh, that they get back from it. You know, you know, in some way, I, I sometimes think about the idea of meritocracy being part of the problem in the sense that there, there is an assumption in this country that you are not cabined to the station in which you're born. Right. Like if you're born poor, you're supposed to have the opportunity to to achieve and get to a different space. If you're middle class, same thing. But at the same time, when when that's true and when that's part of the assumption, uh, it, it can, I guess, get out of control. And so you have people uh, who, um, who who believe who, who are already at the top, really, of of that income pyramid 
also saying, well, you know, I can earn my way to something better. It's it's this idea that there's always something more, I guess, uh, and it comes from that idea of earning, even though I guess that's a warping of the idea of of merit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, uh, we also don't don't forget that we live in this kind of uh, um, bubble world where everybody can now see everybody else and see their life experience so closely, or at least seemingly closely, through um, so many forms of media. And so, you know, we see how the the rich, the, we see how the people who are a little bit richer than us live, and how the people who are a little bit poorer. Um, and I think that leads to a certain kind of cultural paranoia. Uh, it's a bad behavior. But I'll just say one more thing about merit, and then we should hear from somebody else. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, the merit idea is is fundamentally diluted just on a mathematical level. The economy, uh, it, it, it works the way it does for a number of reasons, but it, it doesn't exist to figure out who is exactly worth what and give them exactly what they're worth. It, it just generates certain needs and incomes. Often those are skewed by things that have nothing to do with merit. And the result is that rewards are distributed according to um, uh, in, in a very extreme way. They, they follow mathematics. Mathematicians will tell you that they, they follow a Pareto or power law distribution. Mm-hmm. But anything that we call merit is not distributed that way. It's distributed more like height or, or, or weight or things like that. And those two distributions can't match. They can never match. And it, the, the idea that somehow. Um, you know, everyone's going to get exactly what they deserve is fundamentally diluted. And we have to, at some point, set that aside. We have to accept that hard work will get a good return. But you don't, the idea that people's station is somehow a reflection of their intrinsic virtue hmm. ends up just being used as a cudgel by the people who have succeeded to kind of beat down the people who haven't made it. And see, yeah, you didn't deserve it. But that's anyway, I'm, I'm yeah. starting to rant, so I think we should hear from somebody else. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, Chris on Facebook says, the other night, my parents, a lovable Fox News following couple, were expressing anger over the college admission scandal. I explained that this kind of thing is a generally accepted reality among many, if not most people, and that this type of unfair access and advantage definitely doesn't stop at college. Fascinating to watch as they put two and two together, realizing just how much the deck is stacked in favor of the wealthy. I don't expect to see Bernie stickers on their cars ever, but it was encouraging to see some light get through the Fox fog. Nancy on Facebook says, I think that the wealthy are so accustomed to being at the top of the heap, living in the best possible conditions, driving the best cars, wearing designer labels, etc., that they can't possibly cope with the mere thought of their child not measuring up. Thanks for both of those comments. Let's go to Kimberly in Benton. Kimberly, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. And sure. um, I appreciate all of the comments. Um, I was struck by your opening um, that you were surprised by it. But um, Michael Stewart, I appreciate all of the science and um, psychology behind it. But my uh, comment that I wanted to make and possibly conversation is uh, let's just get down to basics. In every walk of life, um, the whole society, each, each walk doesn't walk the same way. There are people that know the difference between right and wrong. There are people that respect integrity. And just that basic level of I'm going to do what's right. I'm not going to do what's wrong. And we lose that because we think, oh, it's because they're wealthy or, oh, it's because their dad is the high school football coach and he's going to put my friend on. But it's basically down 
to choosing the difference between right and wrong, and we're losing integrity mm-hmm. in the web of our society, of our neighborhoods, uh, Kimberly, whatever, wherever your neighborhood is. Kimberly, that is a really wonderful uh, point. I'm glad you called and made it. Matthew Stewart, we were talking the other day in the office here about this this scandal and preparing the show. And I think we all agreed that we've reached this point where people will do things and justify them by saying, well, this is this is for my kids. I, I, of course, I'll do that because it's it's for my kids and it's to make sure that my kids have the things that they deserve. Uh, what Kimberly's hitting on there is is that, of course, that push, it pushes us into spaces where we're not holding ourselves accountable for morality, uh, for right and wrong, and instead excusing uh, things that we might know are not okay as ways to help our kids. But as you as you point out, uh, it's this pressure to get ahead that brings us into that space. Yeah, you know, one thing that I want to question is whether all the people here really are doing it for their kids. Um, there are, there, there, certainly they did care about their kids in this case. Many of them tried to hide it from their kids. But are they really doing it for themselves or are they, are they or for the kids or are they, are they doing it to, to keep up with a certain image of themselves and their, their family? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, I... Uh, and then here's the other general point I want to make to Kimberly's uh, great comment. Um, I think we all do sense that there is this erosion of trust uh, and that our, our, our sense of morality seems to be uh, fraying. We have to ask ourselves, why is this happening? Right? Did it just visit us from the blue? Is it too, much, too many bad television shows, <laughs> um, bad novels? And, and I think that's, if you follow that line of questioning, I think it's going to lead you to uh, the breakdown in the way our economic system works. I mean, when you have people living in very, very different economic worlds, with very different rewards and structures, they stop trusting one another. They stop seeing one another as members of the same society. They stop feeling the need to um, respect one another and to um, you know, hold mutual obligations. Many of these people who have been caught up in this case, and many people who wouldn't have been, but who are in that same social class, you have to appreciate that they are surrounded by people who are doing stuff for them all the time. They've got a nanny taking care of the kid. They've got people driving them around. They've got people serving them coffee. They've got people getting their kids into college. These are people who are used to seeing other people, uh, most other people, in purely instrumental terms. And however nice they are, at some point, that leads to lack of respect, contempt, and a breakdown of morality. And these can break down morally on, on the other side, too, because people look around them and they say, well, you know, everyone's getting away with stuff, so why should I follow the rules? So we have to look at the fundamental causes. That's what I'd say. But I think we do all share this sense, or many of us share this sense, that, um, that there's some erosion of, uh, of, our, of the moral yeah. foundation of our society. Yeah. Okay, Matthew Stewart, a recent author of a piece in The Atlantic about the college admissions scandal titled The Moral Center of Meritocracy Collapses. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Yeah, great to be here.
Up next, we're going to continue this conversation about the college admission scandal. We'll talk with two people who are very familiar with the admissions process and the culture around getting into college. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to Detroit Today. You can take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about the news this week of a widespread college admissions schedule uh, scandal in which uh, some wealthy parents, and some of them very famous, did things that were unquestionably wrong in order to get their kids into school and may have been illegal. The U.S. attorney, uh, the district the Justice Department, says they were and is uh, seeking to, to punish them for that. Uh, we're talking about what this means inside our culture. Are we in a space where the value of an elite college admission is so high that any parent would do anything to obtain it for their kid? Also, we're talking about why this is true at the upper echelons of the income spectrum. People who already have so much and whose lives are shaped by access and privilege, why are they behaving in such desperate ways? We want to continue the conversation and talk more with some people who are very familiar with this process of people trying to get into school. John Bashovin is a counselor for continuing education at Community High School in Ann Arbor. John, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thanks so much. Thank also, you. also with us is Brian Walsh. He's a journalist and author and former Time Magazine editor. He's also a Princeton alum and interviewed prospective students for Princeton until he became so disgusted by the culture of legacy and money that he quit. He recently wrote a piece that appeared on Medium about the experience. Brian Walsh, welcome to Detroit Today. It's good to be here. Yeah. So, uh, John, uh, let's talk about this application process for high school students and how frenetic it is. I mean, those of us who have teenage kids uh, get some taste of that at, at, at some point. You see it consistently. Is it more intense today than it used to be? And has it reached a point where people are motivated to do things that they know are wrong, but can justify by saying, well, this is the thing that will get my kid ahead. Well, Stephen, I think if I saw that rampant problem that you just described, I would do just what Brian did and quit. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't see it. At least I don't see it with my students and the students in the Ann Arbor public schools. Sure, there are kids that are stressed out and doing everything they think uh, that Princeton, since that's um, Brian's former uh, space, um, they, they're doing everything they hope and think that, that a highly selective college would want. But most of them, most of the kids, I think, are realistic to know that most kids don't get into those very few, very, very few, highly, highly uber-selective colleges. And so if, if we're doing our jobs right as college counselors, we're encouraging them to say, well, you can certainly apply to highly selective colleges, but apply to some that you think 
you'll be good fits at, that you'll be happy at, you'll be successful at, you'll graduate from, and perhaps um, you may be more successful than if you join the rat race at a more selective place. Hmm. I don't see the uh, rampantness, um, but boy, when a story like this hits, it seems like it must be going on in every house. <laughs> well, I think the thing that is going on perhaps in every house is this idea that the admission to a school like Princeton or Harvard or Brown or Yale uh, is a key to opportunity. It's it's the the thing that could open up privilege and access to a family that doesn't have it. Uh, John, you must you must get some sense of that from the interactions with students and families. Sure, there are some students that say I need to go to. Here's the following ten colleges I need to go to, and their feeling is. Uh, if I go to one of these 10, somehow that will open that, that magic door you're suggesting. Um, my, my counteracting point is, what if none of those 10 have graphic arts and that's what you want to study? Hmm. Just because it has a, a name that you've heard of on the door doesn't necessarily, or is highly ranked, doesn't necessarily mean it's the best school for you. It may be a good school in some ranking, but it may not be the best school for you. Hmm. Now, sometimes it's a hard sell because <laughs> the parents, as we've discovered this week, the parents are pushing even harder than the kid is that somehow my measure as a human, my measure as a kid, or my measure as a family relates to the name of the college and my diploma. Yeah. Um, yeah. But <clears throat> most, at least for the students that I'm working with, most of them see if I got in there, great. If not, Number two, number three, number four on my list, I'll be really happy and I'd be excited to go to it. Hmm. Uh, so, so, Brian Walsh, uh, I want you to talk about your experience as a student at Princeton uh, and how that, I guess, related to this, this later work you were doing, uh, helping students choose Princeton. And then tell us why you decided you couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to I guess Princeton is more than 20 years ago now. So it's clearly, you know, it's a different place than, mm -hmm. it, than it was then, you know, and also for, quite frankly, an easier place to get into, you know, the, the, the admission rates for that school and a lot of other schools in the highly selective range has just dropped mostly because so many more people are applying. Personally, from my experience, like I did not expect to get in. I, I felt fortunate to do that. And it did open a lot of doors going forward. I have no idea, you know, it could have been different elsewhere. Um, that said, you know, when I had the experience of being an alumni reviewer where you sort of play a small part in the overall application process, you interview students who are applying, just add a little bit. What, what frustrated me was, was seeing so many students, especially where I was in, in New York, these were not really rich students. These were actually often first or second generation immigrants um, who were working extremely hard. And, you know, it, it was frustrating to see, you know, the advantages being given to those who already had it, whether it was legacy, whether it was the fact that, you know, donations could help you get in, anything along those lines. It seemed unfair when it was such a selective environment to be giving any kind of advantages to those who, who had already started off with, with, with a big leg up. So that was really, as that sort of dawned on me, that I became more and more frustrated, and that's kind of what led me to step o away from that part of the system. Um. Talk about what is going on uh, at these schools 
with these families that fuels this idea. I mean, it, it, it does seem as though the premium that's placed on it, admission to these schools is getting higher and higher. Uh, and, and families just are, are absolutely in on each raise of the ante, right? That that uh, no matter how expensive it gets, no matter how exclusive it gets, no matter how hard it is to get in, they're willing to do whatever it is that they need to do to get it. Um, uh, can you talk about that interplay? Yeah, I think one thing, John's completely right. I mean, you know, there's so much more to college and the kind of colleges students should go to than this tiny percentage of, of sort of selective schools, you know. And by all means, you know, so many other schools might fit different kinds of students in, in a better way. You know, so much of what's going on, and I think we really saw that with this, this, this you know, scam, the scam that was ongoing, is it really wasn't about education. It really wasn't about how, how am I going to do in the world? Because these were all children of, for the most part, people who were rather wealthy. They're going to be okay, you know, almost no matter what school they go to. It was really more about the signaling, like the, the sense from the parents, it sounded like, because often the students didn't even know that they were part of this, this, this scam, that like they had succeeded because they got the brand. They got the signaling that says, oh, my, my, my kid got into Stanford or Yale or USC or, or what have you. you know. And to some degree, that's driven by the exclusivity. I mean, I've always thought that there are definitely far more students who deserve to go to these schools, who would benefit from going to these schools than the number of spots. It would be great if, you know, they were able to use some of those multi-billion dollar endowments to make these schools bigger, you know, admit more students. You wouldn't degrade the experience at all if you did that. And yet I feel as almost as, as if the exclusivity is kind of the point, which is sort of discouraging that. And that to me is, is frustrating. You know, I mean, I think more people could benefit from going there, and yet it's kept almost artificially low in part to keep this sheen of specialness of, 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 of exclusivity, even though it's, it's really impossible for them to choose between the students who are who deserve to go, you know, twice as many or more to get in. So when you when you're talking about people getting advantages, again, for legacies, for what their parents might be donating, or obviously a scam like this, that to me is that that reveals a real problem with with the nature of these schools and how they're perceived. Hmm. Uh, John, can you talk about the role that students' socioeconomic backgrounds play in this process? Uh, do you see families that uh, come from lower uh, lower income levels uh, being more desperate or just as desperate to, to, to get these things as, as middle or, or upper class families? I'm, I'm not finding the desperation because many of them struggle to figure out how they're going to pay for textbooks, sure. much, much less tuition. Um, so I, I think in many cases they don't know what they're what they're not missing um, because they're not caught up necessarily in the country club scene where everybody's talking about the college everybody needs to go to. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that also means the students don't have the support or necessarily the experienced parents that can say um, always, this this I'm going to help you through this. We're going to go through this together. We're going to find some places that we can afford. Uh, in my state, many of the state universities are providing free tuition for low-income students with no loan guarantees. Mm -hmm. So there are so many, so many colleges doing this right and, and trying to open the door uh, to, to students who will benefit and can benefit, um, and they're trying to get the word out. Unfortunately, scandals like this keep those highly sort of prestigious 
I don't want to use the word elite because they're not better colleges than others. <laughs> they just happen to be more selective. Some people think, well, I, I shouldn't go to my state university because maybe it isn't as maybe it isn't good enough for me. However, it's it's approachable, it's affordable, and probably they offer much more support. Many of these colleges offer support before the students ever get there. We have a program at one of our universities. Um, I won't tell you which. Well, I will tell you. At the University of Michigan mm-hmm. uh, has adopted three communities, Detroit, Southfield, and Ypsilanti, uh, to re- provide a pathway for students starting as early as the eighth grade to begin doing working on all those skills uh, and preparing them for all the parts of the college application process that many of these families don't even know exist yet. Right, right. Um, so I, I want to just congratulate the, the thousands of admissions professionals that I work with every day that are doing it right, who are reaching out to kids whose universities are trying to open doors rather than keep selective doors closed uh, <laughs> in the name of uh, exclusivity. Yeah. Okay, John Beshoven, Counselor for Continuing Education at Community High School in Ann Arbor. Thanks for being here with us on Detroit Today. My pleasure. And Brian Walsh, journalist, author, and former Time Magazine editor, also a Princeton alum, and used to interview prospective students for that university. Uh, thank you for being here as well. Thanks. Thanks so much. Up next, we're going to talk about the legality of this college bribery scandal with former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. John on the east side, Jackie and Taylor, Katie in Detroit. We will get to you as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the college admissions scandal that has been in the news this week and what it tells us about our culture. What does it tell us about what people are willing to do to get ahead? What, what does it tell us about morality access, privilege, opportunity, and fairness. We want to change the subject just a little bit here and talk about the legal dimensions of this scandal. And joining us to help us sort that out is Barbara McQuaid. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan and former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks very much, Stephen. Yeah. So uh, how serious are the charges that have been leveled in this cheating scandal? And if you could, I have seen a lot of people on social media say, well, uh, these people are in trouble in the sense that they're being charged with this thing, but eh, they probably won't do any jail time. If you could shed some light on how that works, I think uh, it would help our listeners. I think they have grouped the defendants into a couple of different categories. So they charged one group with a RICO racketeering, and those are people who were in uh, positions of power, people who worked for this uh, Edge Consulting Company who organized it, and the officials at the universities, the coaches uh, and others, the one at the, the guy at the testing center who would take the test for the students. 
they're charged with RICO. That's punishable by up to 20 years in prison, and that's a, a, a very serious offense. So mm-hmm. I think for those defendants, uh, it is a serious crime. Um, the parents were charged, and I am sure this was a uh, strategic and deliberate decision. The parents were charged all in a complaint, um, which charges them with a conspiracy to commit mail fraud, which has a five-year statutory maximum. So that's a much lower penalty. Um, and, you know, just seeing what we saw with Paul Manafort in the news recently, how white-collar defendants so often end up with a much lower sentence than they otherwise could have been, reflecting what I think are really great disparities in our criminal justice system for the wealthy and the powerful. But even their exposure is going to be a little less. So it could be that the parents don't end up with any prison time or very modest prison time. But certainly the prosecutors have shown a spotlight on this. I think admissions are being uh, rejected now, uh, rescinded for students who were accepted. Uh, So there is some consequence for them. But I think the punishment will be uh, somewhat proportional to the wrongdoing. What's really interesting is that the ringleader of this, uh, a man named Singer, who was the idea and the brains behind the whole operation, cooperated early on. He was uh, caught early on by a different cooperator in another case, and he uh, participated in cooperation by uh, uh, using a wiretap to collect phone calls on some of the other complicit people to help build cases against them. And so uh, he likely will receive a reduced sentence for cooperation, though uh, has, has already pleaded guilty. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about the charges being brought against this Rick Singer um, uh, he's been in business since 1994, so he knew what he was doing. But for people who don't exactly understand the limits of the law on this kind of thing, what was he doing that crossed the line into illegal territory? Well, I think the way the scheme is written, it is a scheme or artifice to defraud that utilized the mails or wires. And so um, they are defrauding the universities. The universities did not know about this. They were defrauding the ACT and the SAT companies who administer the test. There were basically two schemes that they used. One was to help students cheat on the test. They would have someone actually either go in and take the test for the student, or the student would take the test and he would correct it after they had turned it in um, to get whatever score uh, Mr. Singer wanted them to get. He would correct it to get that particular score. So that's a cheat on the ACT and SAT testing systems. And they, the, the proctors there uh, certify that the test was administered properly. So by certifying that and then submitting that, they're engaging in however it was submitted, either mail or wire fraud if it's done electronically. That was one scheme. The other scheme was utilizing the athletic departments to uh, get people in. You know, I, I think it's not a secret that admission standards for athletes and other special programs often are slightly less mm-hmm. than for other programs because they're bringing something different to the university and they're willing to uh, accept people who might not have as high of grades uh, as other students. And they give a few slots to the coaches to say, you know, as long as they meet this particular threshold, you can uh, reserve some slots for students who are your athletic uh, recruits, so to speak. Um, But what they were doing is finding students who didn't play these sports at all, someone who would uh, they would uh, falsify to the university that the student was going to run track or play water polo or be on the sailing team or whatever it was. You know, some uh, lesser-known sport, not the football team or the basketball team, but one of the sports that's a little bit below the radar. They would submit false photos of the student, sometimes Photoshop, 
engaging in the sport, mm-hmm. and they're defrauding the university by saying this student's going to come here to play this sport when, in fact, they weren't at all. And the coach received a bribe in exchange for giving up one of those slots. So the university was harmed in this way. This, and, and I think the greatest victims in all of this are those students whose names probably will never be known, whose slots were, were taken from them and given to these people who were willing to pay bribes. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is really difficult to sort out here is the consequences beyond what the legal system is able to charge or, or meet out with uh, the parents or the people who are involved. But the questions that surround these, these, these children, on, on one hand, you have children who were admitted to universities under false pretenses. And there's no other way, I think, to, to interpret that. So what should happen to those admissions? Should they be revoked? Uh, should they be reviewed? But, but as you point out, there's also the question of other children who presumably didn't get into uh, these universities because these other children took their slots, uh, again, using false pretenses. I mean, that's a, that's a really hard, I think that's a really hard thing to think through here because these are children and uh, uh, we don't often or always assume that children should suffer the consequences of their parents' actions or decisions. And in some cases, it appears that the students didn't know what was happening. There was um the, you know, the uh, indictment and complaint quotes from email messages exchanged between some of the parents and the consulting company, uh, and they talk about how, you know, I, I don't want my child to know. It got very awkward because the admissions counselor asked him about his track career, and he said, what are you talking about? I don't run track. Um, so in some instances, I don't know about all, it appears the students didn't even know about the fraud. You know, they, they took the test, they submitted it, and the uh, accomplice was there in the testing center and changed the answers after they were turned in. And so for those students to uh, to rescind, I, I'm sure they're facing great humiliation, uh, great shame, and uh, breach of trust by their parents. So um, really difficult to know what to do about all of them. And even the ones who did know are underage and following the guidance of their parents. Um, they're less sympathetic, I suppose, but but even they uh, led astray by their parents. And I agree with you, really hard to unwind it. I think the bigger picture here, and uh, I'm hopeful this will shine a light on uh, a, a lot of the uh, things that go on in the college admissions processes mm-hmm. um, that, that are actually above board. The uh, You know, one of the things that Rick Singer was able to sell is that, well, there are people coming through the front door by, you know, they're down their merits, and then there are people coming through the back door by making large donations to the universities or having buildings named after their parents. It, that's very troubling, if you think, if, if, if that's really true. Um, and he said, what I'm offering is the side door. If you can't do either, I can still get you in. <laughs> I can still get you <laughs> and in. And I think that's where people knew that that was, uh, was criminal. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Jackie and Taylor. Jackie. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me on. Sure. It's really refreshing to hear some more skepticism about the idea of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated your guest Michael's comments on how it's historically only served the rich and been used as a cudgel against the poor. I thought that was really insightful, Mm -hmm. and it reminds me how war also only serves the rich and hurts the poor. And people have been protesting your station for a month for broadcasting lies about Venezuela. 
to sell your listeners on a war. Hmm. And if this is supposed to be a station for the public, but you lie to provoke war with Venezuela, that really only serves the rich in our country. So, so Jackie, um, uh, I, I did get a Twitter, uh, uh, tw- I got a tweet about uh, this protest. I haven't seen this protest outside the station. I come in and out of here every day. I'd be happy to talk to the people who are part of it. But, but we also did do a segment on Venezuela uh, on the show just a few weeks ago where we talked about what was going on there. And I think there's no way you could have listened to that segment and concluded that we were building a case for war. Uh, we, we never mentioned anything like that, in fact, and, and talked about what was going on there and whether the United States should be involved at all. But uh, if you want to talk about Venezuela, come, come, uh, come in and uh, chat with me. I mean, I'm, I'm here every day from 9 to about 11. So uh, I do appreciate the call uh, on this issue. Let's go to Diane in Southfield. Diane, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Hey. Um, I spent some time in my, in my earlier life uh, with a lot of parents who had kids who were troubled, teenagers who were troubled. And many of them were very... M- high-achieving parents. They didn't come from wealth, but they built their own. And their kids are not going to be the outliers that they were. Hmm. Um, It's very hard to grow up the child of of high-achieving parents if you're not motivated to do, you know, if you don't come with your own motivation and your own passion. Yeah. And... I, I think that not to justify what these parents are doing, but to um, sort of recognize that the kids who get these, um, who get these, the kids who just happen to have these yeah. parents, yeah. are um, living with a whole lot more education yeah, no, I, I than than yeah. other kids do. That's that's an interesting perspective. I'm not sure I entirely agree. I mean, I think uh, lots of people have expectations for their kids, but this pressure to perform. Uh, uh, Barb McQuaid, I've got about 30 seconds left. I wonder if if you can talk some about what judges will be able to consider. Let's say these people are convicted or, or uh, uh, reach plea deals. Are they allowed to consider things like, well, you were doing this on behalf of your child and that is different maybe from uh, other kinds of acts. You know, they are able to consider all kinds of things in there, but I, I think that one of the factors they're supposed to consider is general deterrence. I need to, do I need to punish you to send a message to other people to avoid this kind of conduct in the future? So yes, it's all under consideration, and there will probably be some very sympathetic factors, but I think that if I were the prosecutor, I would make the argument that general deterrence to deter others from engaging in this behavior is really important in this case. Yeah. Okay. Barb McQuaid, uh, University of Michigan law professor, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Stephen. All right. That's going to do it for me this week. I'll be back on Monday. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. I'll see you on Monday.